0: Welcome to this edition of the 401k and Beyond podcast. This is the longer form edition where we have meaningful discussions with folks in and around the investment community. Here is your host, Brian Williams.
1: All right, on this episode, we have Robin Wigglesworth. We're very happy that he was able to take some time away from his paternity leave, which is so important. Uh, But his his young one has stepped out of the house with the uh, with the aid of his mother, so that's a good thing. Uh, he is home today with a, with a couple other kids that he is he's watching. So we're really happy we're able to pull him away from all of that to join us. So welcome, Robin. No, thanks for having me. So we're really excited about this book that's coming out um, in early October. Uh, Going to be out here in a couple weeks. So it's it's trillions how bad of Wall Street renegades invented the DNX fund and changed finance forever. So. So really, the, uh, the excitement for this book came from you writing an article a couple of years ago. So the article was titled The Passive Attack, The Story of a Wall Street Revolution. And I, I think this is an important topic. You know, We'll probably get into some more advanced things later on. But you know, if, if I'm the 25-year-old and I'm just starting to put money away in my 401k or my Roth or whatever it might be, how has this changed? so much of of how I'm going to invest for the next 40 years, putting away that $25 a week. How does this affect me and and why should I care, Robin? Well, it affects
0: everybody. Uh, That's why I just think this is such a a fantastic story and and still underappreciated, because even if you're not saving in an index fund, the pressure that these cheap funds have brought on investment costs in general has saved people around the world hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. So I've seen people calculate just the direct savings if you'd invested in an index fund versus an active fund over the past 30 years in the U.S. is around $350 billion. That's money that's saved directly. But even so, the cost of an average mutual fund, an active mutual fund, you know, whether a Fidelity or American funds, they've also all fallen thanks to the competitive pressures that they've brought on fees. So we all are reaping the benefits of the indexing revolution, whether we know it or not.
1: Yeah, and we, we tell the story a lot and it gets a lot of, as we talked about before, a lot of play on some of these FIRE, fire websites or Facebook groups. And, and a lot of times the story begins with Jack Bogle, right? And he's, he did so much for the indexing community, but it almost sort of picks up the mid-70s as if it just kind of snapped into existence and was an overnight success. But reading through your, your article and, and your book, really, it starts quite a bit before that, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what
0: I, I, I knew some of the earlier history, but the fun part for me of writing the book is also really understanding the, the, the intellectual lineage and how far it stretches back. So the book starts with Louis Bacallier, who was this completely obscure, unknown French mathematician who studied in, in, in the 19, uh, early 1900s in, in Paris. And he did his stock market thesis on, on the French stock market uh and you know it, people thought finance was a little bit grubby so he didn't actually get a good grade people thought well what's a proper mathematician doing anything on stocks but he was the first person to talk about how stock market prices seem to move randomly and actually there doesn't seem to be a lot of order to it and from that idea and the maths that he used to show this You can trace a a lineage all the way to people like Nobel Prize-winning economists like Harry Markowitz, Bill Sharp, and Gene Farmer, who then coined what was known as the Efficient Markets Theory. And thanks to this intellectual backdrop, these foundation stones, uh, a, a bunch of financiers at Wells Fargo back in the day, they had this internal zany think tank called Wells Fargo Management Sciences, They were set up to use computers, which was pretty cool and fancy back in the sixties, to see what they can do in investment management. And they invented the very first index fund. And around the same time, but a few months later, there were similar index funds at the National American National Bank of Chicago, and a Boston firm called Battery March. Uh, And then Jack Bogle later came on the stage. But I think one thing that is less appreciated is that Jack Bogle was a massive active fan through most of his career. He was the CEO of Wellington, and he only became a convert to indexing because it was basically a ploy in a corporate battle with his old enemies at Wellington after they
1: basically sacked him. Right, and I think some of those some of those battles are fun. They're kind of part of the backstory here. So, so Wells Fargo is an interesting name that comes up in this conversation. They've had a lot of headlines, to say the least, over the last decade or so. So, yeah. to think of them as sort of a a pioneer of funds for the people or something like that is, is kind of funny. One of the quotes that, that I got a kick out, out of was um, back at Wells Fargo, the idea was um, they're, they're trying to turn this investment management business into a science, right? Like how, how dare they bring, bring science and, and mathematics into this field of investing?
0: Well, yeah, remember back in the 60s, com- computers were fairly new And you might use it to do certain things by the 70s and calculate asset values. But this was cutting edge stuff. And a lot of people thought it was all hokum. Like people that use computers were called quantifiers or quants or quantitative finances eventually. And, you know, it was radical. The idea that you could turn something that was inherently came down to human judgment, the firmness of a CEO's handshake. The quality of the balance sheet, you could turn that into some bunch of ones and zeros, was considered heretical. And what Wells Fargo Management Sciences did was turn the ideas of academia into something that you could use in practice. So the index fund is by far the most successful version of that. But Wells Fargo Management Sciences also helped birth things like MasterCard and the FICO scores. Some of the work they did there led directly to those, those companies later on. So, you know, the index fund phenomenally successful, but even then I don't think they realized how big it would become eventually.
1: Right, and we think of the index fund as being so, so great for the retail investor and the 401k savers, but it actually has its roots back, back in pensions and uh, the Samsonite of all places, right? Yeah, no, it was Samsonite that, uh, I
0: mean, it's a lot of serendipity in a lot of these things, but Wells Fargo had kind of come up with the basic ideas for what they would think would be a, a good market portfolio, as uh, Bill Sharp might call it. Uh, but obviously, most pension funds weren't crazy about the idea either, because they all think they could pick the best fund managers. The name of the game, as Ned Johnson and Fidelity said, is to be the best. Mm. Uh, but Samsonite, there was a young heir, the son of the CEO, studied for a PhD in economics at Chicago, which was the bastion of efficient markets. That's where Gene Farmer was teaching at the time. So when he returned to the, his family company and looked at Samsonite's pension fund, it looked terrible. Basically, the Samsonite pension fund was invested in a motley bunch of actively managed, very expensive funds that on average underperformed the market quite dramatically. So he called up his old teachers at Chicago and asked, there must be somebody doing this in the in the right way the the efficient markets way and gene farmer and bill sharp and the others all directed him to wells fargo and suddenly you had this marriage of somebody who had money and wanted to do something innovative with it and with the ideas and together that became the samsonite account which was the first index fund even though it wasn't technically a fund it was a basically a separately managed account on behalf of wells fargo and with samsonite money and then later they basically smushed it together with some Wells Fargo pension fund money and got buying from big pension funds like the AT&T Baby Bells. So AT&T was split into all these regional uh, telephone companies each with their own pension funds. And they done started doing the work in the seventies as well and realized that like between all the Baby Bells as they were called, they own pretty much one of the biggest chunks of the US stock market. And all their active managers that were investing in separately all basically trading shares among each other. So they were paying fund managers a lot of money at the time to do this and incurring the trading costs. So they realized that the best way for them would be um, basically just to go indexing and go to Wells Fargo or American National Bank of Chicago. So the genesis was the Samsonite account. But the, sort of the prime mover that really turned this into a phenomenon, I'd say, were they, the AT&T baby bells, as they were called, the AT&T pension fund system.
1: How quickly did that spread through the, the pension industry? Or was that sort of a, or did you have some that were kind of late adopters there?
0: I mean, it still hasn't moved maybe as much as it should globally, not even in the US. In the 70s, it was a big theme. Because in the 70s, you also had this big, massive beer market, inf- inflation adjusted terms, the worst since the Great Depression. And that really showed that a lot of fund managers were you know, swimming without trunks, uh, as the cliche goes. And that forced a lot of pension fund managers who also started collating the data. And fundamentally, people for a long time just didn't know how well the market did. You might know what it did on a single day but indices were pretty cumbersome they were slow you don't have historical data for the stock market and that all started coming in the 60s and 70s Mm -hmm.
1: so
0: by the end of the 70s we're talking quite a few billion dollars but still it was still a tiny part of the overall investment management industry and the pension fund industry as a whole and people still thought that indexing and index fund investing might a bit of a fad by then. It's not really until the nineties that things really started exploding,
1: right? And when Jack Bogle started his fund, it was by no means an overnight success, right?
0: No, it was. Uh, it's famously called Bogle's folly. It was, it was a complete dud. It was a disaster, I and mean, they kind of knew it would be tough, but know at least pension fund trustees and chief investment officers at big pension plans vaguely knew the academic data. They might not always agree with it, but at least they, they read the papers that came from Bill Sharp and, and Gene Farm and the others. Or some of them did, at least. But In the retail world, this just didn't exist. You don't want to get I remember the, the famous quote was actually Ned Johnson again. I think it was him. But um, somebody said, like, who wants to be operated on by a mediocre surgeon? Who wants to have a mediocre solicitor who wants to have a mediocre meal you know you always want the best but you know this the fact that you know not everybody can be above average hadn't really filled in into the retail world so when they tried to sell their their first index investment trust which was vanguard's initial product it was a disaster nobody really wanted to buy it so they were hoping for 150 million dollars and they got $11 million in the end. They couldn't even buy all the stocks in the SP 500. And for a long time, for years afterwards, it didn't really go anywhere. It just didn't get any traction.
1: Right. And then once retail investors started to, to wake up, and then you have services like Morningstar that come into play and people are going online and have their ability to sort of do their own research. That sort of helped propel it forward too. Yeah, very much so. And so it's hard to tell the story of, of indexing without progressing along into ETFs. So that's an interesting story as well. So we know that Jack Bogle was not initially and eventually sort of warmed up to the idea of of ETFs a little bit, but his idea was to buy the index and hold it, not buy it at 9.35 in the morning and trade it at 10 o'clock. So so that wasn't really a big uh, selling point early on for Vanguard ETFs, right?
0: No, uh, this was a big problem for them. Uh, I mean, you can th- see the indexing revolution, like most revolutions or technological disruptions happening in, in stages. But the first one were the, sort of the first institutional pension fund index funds set up by people like Wells Fargo and later State Street and others and Bankers Trust. And then Vanguard started doing it in, in the retail space, bringing the indexing revolution to the masses. Uh, but the third stage was Arguably, the, the birth of ETFs, and ironically, Nate Most, who worked at the American Stock Exchange at the time, he was sort of the head of new products there. He had this idea of tra- creating tradable index funds because he desperately wanted more stuff to trade on the Amex. The Amex was basically in a death battle with the Nasdaq and and the Big Dad brother, the. New York Stock Exchange for market share. It was kind of slowly dying. So it needed something. It needed a Hail Mary. And he thought tradable index funds could be it. So he went to Jack Bogle and pitched this. And Bogle pointed out a few of the practical problems with it. But the broader issue, he just absolutely hated the idea of, like you say, people trading in and out of index funds. He wanted them to buy the market and hold it forever. So he sent Nate Most packing. But Nate Most eventually did find another partner in State Street, which was another big index on the institutional side, and together they created what became Spider, the first index
1: uh, ETF, uh, and from that flowed an entire revolution. Yeah, and the and the Spider started trading uh, at least for here in the US. Started trading uh, north of the border first, right? Canada, they beat us yeah. by a little bit, right? No, it's a bit
0: of a a quirk that, you know, there are pros and cons in having a regulator that takes customer protection seriously. But the SEC is not the most dynamic agency all the time. Mm -hmm. And even though the the genesis for the ETF actually came from uh, the SEC's report, a study into the market in 1987 market crash, um, the SEC and lots of people there quite like the idea of ETFs. It took a very long time to prove it because there's so many different departments involved. There were so many exemptions needed from the the 1940 Act that regulates mutual funds to do this, that actually some Canadians, a group of Canadian exchanges, market makers, uh, were able to basically pretty much copy the design, which had been filed in the US, and launch the Canadian ETF, the first ever ETF in Canada before... Spider launched in the US. Now, in practice, so they, they got there first, but I mean, not to be mean to Canadians, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's, Spider was the one, Amex and State Street were the inventors. And the Canadians I spoke to were very open and said, look, the only reason we were able to get there was that the Canadian regulators waved us through and the SEC just took a little bit longer time.
1: Right. And we're sort of living in that space now with some of the uh, cryptocurrency ETFs right. and and all of that, too, as Canada sort of gets a jump there. Yeah. The There is a bit of an echo uh, to history, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so the ETF story, um, that's one that's interesting because there's um, because there's a few different components, like the indexing story. There's the actual investment thesis of being able to purchase the, the basket of the stocks and that they'll outperform. But the other Part of it is that you're able to do it a lot less expensively because you're not hiring uh, a portfolio management team and along those lines. So there really is the two components. There's there's the fact that it's inexpensive and then there's the investment part of it. In your opinion, how much do you think comes from just the fact that the outperformance comes from being able to do it less expensively or just the idea that the basket of stocks does better than the market as a whole or the, the active management?
0: So both of them, really, uh, and it depends on the index and, frankly, the stock market error, what matters most. I mean, broadly speaking, as, as Jack Bogle pointed out, Jack Bogle, in a nod to his initial uh, hostility to passive investing, Uh, said that he was never really a believer in the efficient markets hypothesis, but he was a believer in the costs matter hypothesis Mm -hmm. and costs matter. And we see this, frankly, across the board, not just in index funds, but like even among active funds inside the active segment, the cheaper funds tend to do better than more expensive funds over time. That it's very hard to overcome the hurdle of high costs. It's a bit like starting every soccer match a goal down, or maybe even two goals down. Then maybe you have the best team in the world, but that's still a big deficit to overcome if you the costs are high. And then we have the fact that in the long run, the data is pretty much unequivocally grim across every market segment, that in the long run, active does worse than passive that the entire market portfolio. And there are many reasons for that, that they kind of end up being quite kind of nerdy and goes into issues like the economies like to call skew, basically the skew of distribution. The remarkable phenomenon that basically like 97% of the, the, all stocks that have ever been listed in the US have basically done worse or as good as T-bills that only 3% of all stocks listed in the US over the past 100 years account for all the stock market gains over that period. So if you get one of those stocks right, then you might have an entire career. But that might just be blind luck. I mean, even people like Warren Buffett have admitted that maybe they just got really lucky early on in the career on big bets on companies like Geico and basically rode that and did a bit of fancy stuff around the edges. But with one big, great bet, then you can make your career. So. I I like to see it as both, that the costs matter and as much as you can minimize them as possible, you should. And that goes basically across almost every walk of life, but certainly in investing, the costs matter hypothesis. And then there's the active segment that I think in certain parts of the market, like US large cap stocks, the main, the big beast of the stock market, the evidence that fund managers have any durable edge in that era is de minimis. It's very hard to beat the US stock market in the long run because there's so much information out there. You're fighting against so many smart people. Like back in the day in the 60s, this was hard enough. But your rivals were people that, frankly, hadn't even studied economics. Like having a CFA, when the CFA started coming, that was considered cutting edge advantage. Now, you know, tens of thousands of CFAs. CFAs is kind of entry-level stuff. You can have a PhD in economics and not get a job in asset management anymore. So it's getting harder and harder. Now, on the kind of active versus passive, there are some corners of markets where active does actually do better. And there is some evidence, not fantastic, but at least some evidence that there is also persistence. Like there are some people that do better over time as well. So you know, junk bonds, emerging market equities, really niche areas, like a a fund manager that has like deep domain expertise in healthcare costs, Mm -hmm. uh, healthcare industry, that does occasionally yield results. But if you're going to be buying some US stock market exposure for your retirement, then indexing is the way to go for 99.9% of the
1: world's. Right. I, I agree with that. And, and we've seen that. And one of the things that's interesting as you mentioned, you know, healthcare or, or junk bonds, usually some of the outperformance there comes from not those CFAs, but somebody who comes from the healthcare industry yeah. and then joins, you know, an, an actively managed shop or starts running money later in their career. So they're coming in with that outside expertise. And that's where the outperformance comes from, not not from not from yeah. the spreadsheet
0: yeah no i mean you kind of i mean it's one of those buffett once did this fantastic uh, mental experiment back in the i think 80s I was, when he talked about uh, coin flipping he basically said like imagine like 200 million americans all started flipping coin betting a dollar on each flip you know statistically thousands of people are going to get 10 heads in a row that doesn't mean they're good at coin flipping it's just distribution and the same way that with fund managers you're always gonna get some people that do well for a year or three years and sometimes even 10 years. But it's hard to know even after the fact whether they did well because they were just lucky. They just happened to be the, the guy that flipped heads 10 times in a row or whether they were good. But yes, if you can find somebody with plausible domain expertise, let's say a former doctor turned fund manager or a technologist or computer scientist that actually understands cloud computing, for example, you know, those are areas I think you can have at least plausible edge. So I think that's what you need to look for. Like, why does this person, the, why does he or she actually have an edge to be able to do that? Most of the time when I've looked, I've found very little reason why this person should do so much better than anybody else. And lo and behold, whenever you have somebody who's done really well,
1: and makes on the cover of Fortune or Forbes, the next decade is usually just awful, Right. That's the hardest part. It's easy to find somebody who's outperformed. It's harder to find if if it's a repeatable process or not. Yeah. With indexing, I mean, obviously it's been a huge revolution, a huge benefit for investors, but it's not all rosy, right? We've had some issues here the last few years when people talk about voting and and who's going to vote and uh, should these index funds be taking a more uh, active, for lack of a better word, active position in voting some of these these concepts, whether it's, you know, gun control or or ESG. So how is that factored into the equation as the index funds have just grown to massive size? Yeah.
0: No, I mean, it, it's it's the, the biggest issue right now. And the reason why I wanted to write a book is not just because I love history and I love piecing together how this happened, because it's a disruptive technology fundamentally. But, you know, I think the implications are still huge and still underappreciated. Uh, so broadly speaking, I kind of divide the, the criticism, the, the the counter-revolution as it we were, into four parts, uh, of which I think I have various degrees of of importance or how serious I take them. But like one is just the fact that especially ETFs are far more flexible vehicles than the classic index funds. So the first ETFs were passive, so we associate them with cheap passive S and P five hundred exposure. But in reality, you can put anything into them, pretty much, and people are putting anything into them, including incredibly dicey derivatives and stuff that frankly is just gonna cost people just as much money as like penny stocks that were like pumped by boiler rooms back in the day and still are. So in many ways, it's kind of the revolution. It's, It's the proliferation of product in the index fund universe is I think kind of reinventing the original sin that led to the invention of index funds initially. We know people are pretty bad at this on average. So we decided to give people products that have these broad, diverse funds in one cheap package. That was great. And then we decided, well, let's use that package to put all sorts of like funky stuff inside it. So I don't see the difference between punting on an individual biot- hot biotech stock and a biotech ETF. Uh, I think those, it just boils down to some, sort of taste like i'm 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 half norwegian so i'm a little bit of social democratic in my bones i think people do occasionally need to be protected against bad decisions like we don't let people do heroin and i don't think we should let people buy triple inverse leathered etfs either Mm -hmm. but you know other people say look it's a free market and you know you have to give people the products that they want if there's a demand for it there's a demand for it the second one is just, and it's a slightly more ephemeral, but it's the power that accrues to index providers. The people actually create the indices. Like there are basically only three of them. So there's the SP P uh, down Joe's indices in the US, FTSE Russell, mostly based in then in, in the UK, but obviously under the Russell indices, and MSCI, which is dominant internationally. And they are incredibly powerful because of the trillions of dollars that have flowed into index funds and passive investment strategies in general. And I think that has kind of given them quasi-regulatory powers without the commensurate democratic accountability and transparency that we'd expect. Like what MSCI and S&P says about, let's say governance structures, like how you structure a bond, what do you have to do to get admittance into the MSCI Emerging Markets Index or the S&P 500? actually matters as much if not more than frankly what some regulatory bodies say and i think that's like an issue we need to struggle and grapple a little bit with i mean so far there's no signs that this is like a really malignant issue but it's definitely something to watch
1: and is the there a fit yeah. Is there a feeling that when the index market gets to be a certain size, um, then it becomes an issue? I know that's kind of a moving target, uh, you know, in your article and the 90% number was used, you know, um, but the index part portion is growing. Is, did you find a number or a consensus, whether it's years away or percentage of the market when it starts to become a problem?
0: Yes and no. I mean, so this goes into the third issue. To what extent is the the rise of indexing affecting markets or distorting markets or manipulating markets? Like these are really emotive terms, but like at what point does indexing become too big? Because like fundamentally and unambiguously, index fund investors are freeloaders off the work done by active managers in setting prices or trying to set prices. They might not be really good at it all the time, but bullies being bad is a service they provide to financial markets that index funds freeload off. Uh, I think at at its center, this is an overdone concern and that whether it's 80, 90 percent, I mean, who knows? Like imagine like a housing market on any given house. If you're selling your house, you have like a million people bidding and selling for that house. No, it doesn't mean that the property market is fundamentally broken. I mean, there might not be work, it might not be as efficient as we'd like. But broadly speaking, vast amounts of goods and services in our economy at any given time do not have even thousands of participants pricing that constantly. Do we need that in stocks? Well, we probably don't need millions of people, but we probably need thousands. I don't know. But right now, I know that there are more hedge fund managers, more private equity investors, there are more index funds and more active mutual funds than ever before. Like rather than killing active, active continues to thrive. The margins in the investment management industry are fatter than the technology industry. Like the average US asset manager has fatter profit margins than big tech. So as much as they complain about the pressure brought on them, I have exceptionally little sympathy for somebody who's still making margins of 30, 40, 50%. Like there is a lot of margin that can come out of that industry before we start worrying about that, I think.
1: Right. Yeah. And then then there's the, the kind of the idea of it becoming sort of a self-fulfilling process, right? If, if everybody's retirement account has 6% of their portfolio in Apple and all their new contributions have 6% going to Apple, does that at some point mess up the market to, to the point where nobody else can get that market share and you're essentially guaranteeing apple a spot at the top of the lineup in perpetuity or something like that
0: yeah i mean this is this is the 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 theory that there's an embedded momentum effect and you can kind of see it in that like for example every dollar that today goes into an s p 500 index fund, 20 cents of that dollar goes into basically big tech now and you know, I, I, what is it, like 10 cents of it goes into the top five companies. Yeah. And not so long ago, that would have been radically different. But fundamentally, it's only every new dollar. And so far, like, Apple has gone up and down. Like, if you turn the clock back to before the financial crisis, ExxonMobil was the biggest company in the world. I mean, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, the financial bank, the institutions were huge. So are there any signs that they're being unduly pushed up? I'm not so sure. I think the big technology companies and the big companies in general are the biggest, not because of index fund flows, but because they're just way more profitable. I mean, these companies are insanely profitable and have, short of very aggressive government antitrust action, very little way to be competed out. I mean, they're these natural monopolies, or at least oligopolies, when it comes to modern companies because of the network effect. So I, I struggle to see how index funds do this. Also partially because I mean, people forget, but for decades, I mean, for centuries, a lot of active funds were closet indexes. Mm-hmm. They just bought the market and got paid 1%, 2% a year to do that. So now the money's migrated from the closet indexes, to actual indexes at a lower price. But does that fundamentally change how companies are priced? I don't see any evidence of that. I still active price formation on a microsecond basis all the time in markets. Like, I definitely think index funds are having an impact, but whether it's this pernicious or pervasive force that some critics see, I I struggle to to see that, at least yet.
1: So what's next? We've had... uh... Originally, you had ETFs being based on indexes. Now we're having indexes being created based on an ETF, right? So some quant backtests a certain strategy and we create the index and we create the ETF. Um, where do you, the people that you spoke with see the industry going for better and worse?
0: That's a great question. And it's something mm-hmm. I spend a lot of my day job at the Financial Times thinking about as well. Uh, broadly speaking, I think, the, the whole line between active and passive has always been pretty blurry, mm. because like even if you buy an S&P 500 index fund, that's an active choice. Like, and somebody actively chose what 500 companies are in that. It's a largely quantitative, but not entirely quantitative uh, decision. So there's always a bit of discretion. And then especially with the proliferation of of smart beta or factor ETFs and index funds, there are many twists you can do and reverse market cap weighting, GDP weighting, sales weighting, there are many things. So I think broadly speaking, the line between active and passive has always been blurry and is going to get increasingly blurred out or just disappear in the coming decade or two. Mm -hmm especially because of the rise of direct indexing, which a lot of people think is sort of indexing 3.0. So if index funds were the index mutual funds and institutional funds was the first variant of the revolution, ETS was the second direct indexing, which is basically gives you, the consumer, the power to construct an index according to your desires and your personal beliefs or, or, or thoughts. Uh, that is the next level. And that obviously feeds into the blowing of active versus passive because if you're kind of sitting there choosing a default S&P 500 and it's opt-clicking out certain companies or sectors that you don't like, then it's an active decision as well. A lot of people think this is going to become huge. I definitely think it's going to become big. I don't think it's going to fundamentally change the broader trajectory of money flowing into plain vanilla cheap index funds which are becoming, I mean, you can buy them for free now, like zero cost, And I think that is going to become increasingly, in the next decade, a Vanguard 500 fund is going to be free. Mm -hmm. Um, Direct indexing, look, it's cool. And a lot of people will like to kind of tweak out certain things, like simple, obvious things. Like if I work at Facebook, do I want Facebook stock in my index fund? Well, if I get sacked then you know, it might be because Facebook is doing badly. So you're kind of doubling up your economic exposure to one company. Or you might not like tobacco companies because your parents died from you know, cancer or something. So I can see the appeal, and it's definitely growing and will grow for a long time. But the broad mass of people, I, are you? can you be bothered to sit there and micromanage every single thing in your portfolio? Most people can't be bothered. So, they might give some broad discretion to financial advisors who might start doing this. But broadly speaking, I think it's hard to see the overall asset shift changing dramatically. So, direct indexing, long answer short, is going to grow, but it's not going to directly challenge the hegemony of, of passive investing as a whole, I
1: think. Okay. So the book is Trillions: How Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and Changed Finance Forever. Um, you can pre-order it on Amazon. It's coming out October twelfth. Who is the intended audience for this? And do you consider this more of a finance or a history book? A little bit of both, maybe.
0: Wow, that's a great question uh, because <laughs> I, I I tell whoever I'm talking to is you are the intended audience, but. <laughs> But broadly speaking, like I, I find finance and investing in markets just absolutely fascinating. And I think too many industries, but finance in particular, likes to pretend is more complicated than it really sometimes is. And, and obscures how important it is with jargon or convolutedness. And fundamentally, when I started studying this and thought it, this would make a great book, it was because it was a great story about people like crazy people who are kind of figuratively spat upon by their own industry that invented something profoundly disruptive. And it could have been the computer. It could be in the mobile phone. I just happened to write about index funds. And that's why I always say, look, fundamentally, like, yes if you're interested in finance, it's right in your wheelhouse. But broadly speaking, I did write a book that like my parents could read and find vaguely interesting because it's fundamentally a human story is a, it's a very recognizable business story and it gives you an insight into something that maybe more people should know and appreciate a little bit. So yeah, all the people in the entire world should read my book, obviously.
1: Okay. Did your parents read it?
0: Uh, Yes. My father has read a, a manuscript and I literally only got my own copy yesterday so I'm going to give a physical copy to my mother. She still doesn't like reading stuff digitally. My wife has just started as well.
1: Okay. And to be fair, I did kind of get mixed reviews from your eight and your five-year-old, right? Yes.
0: Yeah. They, they wanted more pictures and they thought mm. money was boring. But they liked the dedication that, that they, which was pretty much the only thing they did read
1: in that first copy I got. <laughs> well, which if you was... give them a couple of crayons, they can create their own pictures. Yeah. I'll just buy them some ice cream and say, I got this from the book advance and they'll be happy as Larry. Perfect. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Robin. Again, the book is Trillions, How Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and Changed Finance Forever. Thanks, Robin.
0: No, thanks, Brian. Thanks so much for having me on.